Welcome back, thrill seekers, to Beatrix Green on Fear, Realm's Horror Channel. Beatrix and her team of would-be ghost hunters are about to arrive at Asbury Manor for a classic haunted house party. Check it out right after this word from our sponsor. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have another incredible writing team on this one. Rachel Hawkins is a best-selling author of more than a dozen titles for both adults and children, and is also the proud custodian of five, yes, five cats. Ash Parsons, in addition to being an award-winning author, is a graduate of Ringley Brothers and Barnum and & Bailey Clown College. And Vicky Alvear Schechter is an award-winning author of both fiction and nonfiction, as well as a docent at the Michael C. Carlos Museum of Antiquities at Emory University. Suffice it to say, they bring a lot to the table. So let's get back to the world they've created. So glad you're part of our horror club. I'm your host, Pun Bandu, and this is Beatrix Green, episode two. The next day, one could have hoped for better traveling weather. While one was wishing, one could also have hoped for a less talkative companion, even if one was profoundly grateful that Harry had agreed to come and act as chaperone. Beatrix sighed. Her friend had kept up a constant chatter from the second they sat down in the carriage in the late morning. From the moment he'd opened the door to his lodging house, dragging along an absurd amount of baggage considering they'd only be at Ashbury Manor for a single night, Harry had not stopped to breathe. Mainly, her oldest friend was excited at the prospects, both of leaving the city and pursuing the mystery of Ashbury Manor. His words were a revolving wheel on the topics of travel, the manor, and Beatrix's need to be extremely cautious with her new employer. As if she didn't know that already. The headache that had threatened Beatrix all through the rainy afternoon throbbed ominously at her temples. It was almost as if Harry's words had weight or as if they were creating pressure, a diver's bell of air filling the small space. And each word pounded at Beatrix's head. Part of her regretted her insistence that Harry come along as her chaperone. Her mind drifted to the dark figure that had visited her, to the warning it had whispered, do not go. 
the voice. Faint, almost within the phantom sound of water itself, as if runnels poured off an object or a body hauled up from the ocean floor. The salt tang of brine and something organic, worse, only present for a moment, then gone. No, she must have dreamt it. There was no way the ghost of Roger Latham had visited her flat. No way the ghost had warned her not to go to Ashbury Manor. It was the workings of her overtired mind and overextended pocketbook. That was all. The pressure of providing for herself, and occasionally has when he came up at odds, was too much. Pair that with the ridiculous sum she was promised by that man, James Walker, a so-called scientist, and the way he looked at her, as if he wasn't dangerous, as if he wouldn't ruin her reputation with one word if she failed at this ridiculous assignment, to prove that ghosts were real when of course they were not. It was a dream. It hadn't been a ghost. Beatrix couldn't shake the uncanny knowledge that she'd been awake. The memory of prickling along her skin, arising with the figure's words. Do not go. Harry's voice intruded on her thoughts for the millionth time. Beatrix closed her eyes and pinched the bridge of her nose with her velvet gloves. I don't mean to sound rude, but can you please be quiet for a moment? There was a sudden silence from across the carriage. Beatrix didn't have to open her eyes to know that Harry was staring at her in wounded affront. A little sniff confirmed the mental image. Even though she wasn't a real psychic, Beatrix could picture Harry's expression clearly. She reached out, still with her eyes closed, and found Harry's hand. I'm sorry, I'm out of sorts, she amended, finally looking at him. Harry's warm brown eyes twinkled. You never. Beatrix gave his hand a squeeze. Thank you for coming with me, Haz. Harry was silent in reply. When Beatrix opened her eyes again, he leaned forward. I'm just nervous for you, that's all. What if that fellow is playing some game? What if you can't give him the answer he desires? Don't worry, Haz. He's a believer underneath by his own admission. Just like the others. Once we arrive at the manor, he's bound to reveal precisely what he's looking for and why. Beatrix turned and looked back out the window. The rattle and creak of the carriage sounded like a murmur of agreement. I know what I'm doing, Beatrix said, as much to remind herself as to reassure her friend. The carriage lurched to one side, turning sharply onto a wide avenue bordered with tall trees. The unremitting rain and the rumble and crack of thunder in the distance made the autumnal leaves above feel ominous, caging. This must be the edge of the estate, Harry said, glancing past her. He peered out the window to the rolling lawn beyond the tree line. I hope so, Beatrix said. Anything to get this over with, she didn't say. Despite the rain, there was a surprisingly large number of people gathered at the side of the lane. The carriage slowed as it neared the gate. The throng of bystanders stood in the way. A man bedecked in red and black ribbons held a printed broadside. The history, he bellowed as they rolled past. 20th anniversary of the shocking events, a woman screamed. She wore a choker-style necklace. It was a wide crimson ribbon with twinkling beads roped in descending drapes across her throat. 
as if the jeweler wanted to evoke the spill of lifeblood. Get your commemorative necklace! A jewel for each year! A strand for each life taken or ruined! Beatrix felt her skin tighten and pull, a sickening crawling. The house was haunted, so of course Beatrix knew there would be a dark history. Murder, no doubt several, over the course of the hundreds of years the house had stood. But these ghoulish tourists were drawn to something more recent. A murder, or murders, from more recent times. Both the Barkers and those buying their wares seemed to be mostly from the working class, just like most of the people who showed up in Beatrix's parlor. They were perhaps finishing a day's outing or picnic, looking forward to giving their companions delicious shivers by reading from the penny dreadfuls they eagerly purchased at the gates of the abandoned manor. Beatrix stared out the window, eyes now drawn to a woman holding a tray full of trinkets, mostly dolls, all dark-haired and dressed in a nightgown, ornamented with a red blaze on the stomach. Next to the woman, a man sold tiny, doll-sized coffins. A little girl with a wide ribbon in her hair tucked her little doll into its casket, closing the lid tenderly. Another child rocked her doll coffin, humming a lullaby to it as they rolled past. The carriage driver made whistling chirps at the people. The road into Ashbury Manor cleared as the crowd slowly moved aside. See how it happened? Experience the terror! A man yelled, thrusting a penny dreadful at the carriage window. I think I've seen this one. Harry grabbed the pamphlet through the window, tossing a coin to the seller as he did. At the blood tub, you know, the Savoy. One of those grand guignol pieces. Sensational. Not art, mind, but damned effective. You've seen this play, Harry, about this house. It was a scene of murders, don't you see? Harry turned excited eyes to her as the carriage at last cleared the imposing gates of the estate. The rattle of the carriage resumed as the horses sped up the winding drive. What happened? she asked. Harry skimmed through the pamphlet. I've seen a lot of these productions, so I don't quite recall, but Ashbury Manor. I believe it had something to do with the murder of a woman and a child. A governess, perhaps? Aha, no. Worse than that, it was a mother and her son. It says there was some suspect who was never caught, a footman. The woman's throat was slit, gruesome, and her child, poor little chap, was, um, was... You can say it, Beatrix murmured. I'm not a shrinking violet. He was stabbed, it looks like, by a spear? Egad, what a mess. Can't have been a knife according to the drawing. Beatrix's mind began to whirl. Why had James invited them here to this specific manor? Did he think that ghosts were more likely to linger at the site of an infamous murder? Was that the test? She couldn't be sure, but she could use the murder, whatever it turned out to be, to weave her spell on the others to give James whatever it was that he sought. The murder and the throng of tourists at the gate had set the stage. All she had to do was raise the curtain. Beatrix took a deep breath and squared her shoulders. She would do it, work her craft and beguile even the most reluctant of skeptics into belief. Her livelihood depended on it. 
The driver's voice traveled to them as he called for the horses to slow. The carriage turned the last bend in the drive, revealing Ashbury Manor itself. It was a massive brick and stone fortress. Wickedly pointed spires topped each peak of the roof. Modest place, Harry said dryly. Pity they don't have room to spread out. The manor was imposing, at least three stories tall, with a taller turret rising above all in the center. The rain had tapered to a mist and the cut stones gleamed coldly in the fading light, with the entire structure the color of old bone. Newer but no less imposing sections of the house flared out on either side, like crenellated stone wings emanating from the body of a bat. She couldn't help but notice that the rain-splotched stone seemed to be oozing some dark material from the heart of the fortress. It looked primal and ectoplasmic. The murder brightened her mind, Beatrix suppressed a shiver. Yes, shame they don't have enough room. Beatrix forced a one response to Harry's joke. She must have sounded nervous because Harry bumped his shoulder into hers lightly. The carriage pulled past the house and through the porte cochere. Don't worry, Harry reassured. As he said, you know what you're about. You'll have him eating out of your hand. Perhaps, Beatrix said, but even to her own ears, her voice rang false. As the carriage drew to a stop, the heavy clouds parted, allowing a sliver of light across the lawn. Rainwater glittered like diamonds on the cobblestones. James stood waiting for them. He was as imposing as the house at his back, rigid as the stones that rose into the sky. Next to him were a footman and another manservant, perhaps the caretaker of the manor. The footman darted forward to open the carriage door and lower the metal step. After Harry emerged, James approached with shocking alacrity, extending his hand to help Beatrix from the carriage. His blue eyes lifted back to the dark interior, seeking and finding her. His expression lightened somewhat, and Beatrix felt her cheeks warm. Whatever Beatrix thought of the man, she had to admit he had an arresting stare. But what sort of secrets did those eyes hide? She hovered, apprehensive, even as James's hand waited for her to take it and descend. It's just a job, B. Get your coins and get out. Good evening, Miss Green. James's accent was as impeccable as his posture. Welcome to Ashbury Manor. Thank you, Mr. Walker, she said, swallowing her nerves. Beatrix placed her hand in his. The touch of his fingers sent a jolt up her arm, and from the rise of James's eyebrows, she could tell he felt it too. As her feet touched the earth, James immediately withdrew his hand, pulling back as if singed by a flame. Time felt slowed, stretched like the stillness of a cat about to pounce. There was the sense of something threatening emanating from James. No, not from James. From the house. What in the... But as soon as Beatrix went to investigate the feeling, it was gone. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. The world tilted back as the sun broke through the clouds. We saw the house as quite a devoted following. Harry cut in as he came to stand beside them. I beg pardon? James turned to face Harry. Back at the gates. Harry's droll tone matched his quirked eyebrow. Curiosity seekers, eh? Yes, the ghastly fans. James replied, his voice light. What a way to spend one's wages. He shook his head in disdain, but Beatrix noted the quickening of a pulse at James's neck. There was something that disturbed him about the throng at the gates no matter how he tried to allay it. Or had he felt that same sense of unease as she had? Well, perhaps we are no better than they, Harry retorted. How so? James turned to Harry with a slight smile. Harry smiled back. Well, how much are you spending relative to what you have? If they bought a trinket, you bought us all a night in this house. Is that not the same? He rocked back on his heels, amused by his own rejoinder. I take your point, James said. Oh, his expression was easy, but his posture was as rigid as ever, almost as if he might snap in two if he were drawn any tighter. Whatever was going on? He had seemed so relieved, almost open, when they had spoken at his club. But no more. One of their carriage horses wickered. A moment later, the clattering splash of hooves erupted from the porte cochere. A second carriage pulled up to the door. James turned to the arriving carriage with transparent relief. Ah, the rest of our party. The footman darted forward again. The carriage door opened and a young man emerged. No, not a young man. A woman in men's clothes. She wore a stylish young man's flashy waistcoat, subdued somewhat by a dark green overcoat. She was older than Beatrix, possibly by ten years or more, with a short, bell-shaped abundance of wavy brown hair. Once on the ground, the woman paused, adjusting the line of her tapered trousers and removing her top hat. She was quite dashing, and Beatrix felt an affinity for her at once. Mrs. Amanda Reynolds. James stepped forward, extending his hand as he would to a man. I'm honored to meet you at last. The woman took his hand and pumped it firmly, she placed her other hand on James's shoulder. My pleasure, good fellow. An intriguing opportunity. Her voice was deep, with an underlying rasp like the stroke of a cat's tongue. James turned to introduce Beatrix. Mrs. Amanda Reynolds, may I present Miss Beatrix Green and her companion Harry... His voice trailed off, eyebrows raised as he realized he didn't know Harry's full name. Harry clicked his heels together, bowing slightly. Mr. Harold Smythe, but you may call me Harry. Oh dear, Beatrix recognized that particular light in Harry's eyes. He was clearly taken with Mrs. Reynolds, 
but she doubted there was much her incorrigible friend could get away with in a single night, and it seemed this Mrs. Reynolds could take care of herself. Amanda extended her hand to Beatrix. For a split second, Beatrix couldn't decide how to present her own hand. Should she shake it, like a man? Let her hand rest lightly, knuckles up, the way she had taken James's hand. Delighted at the quandary, Beatrix felt a wide smile spread across her mouth. She stuck out her hand and squeezed the other woman's hand tightly. Amanda chuckled and brought her other palm on top, nesting Beatrix's shake in a warm grip. You're the medium, Amanda stated, making Beatrix feel an unexpected rush of pride. And you're the American photographer, Beatrix replied. She gestured to James. Mr. Walker told us about you. Ah, yes, but someday I will simply be known as the photographer, Amanda declared, an eyebrow quirked in good-natured challenge. I've already succeeded in jettisoning the unnecessary woman from the description. Beatrix smiled. Certainly I shall do my part and refer to you simply as the photographer. Amanda winked and tipped her chin in acknowledgement. Do you do spectral photography exclusively? Beatrix asked. Amanda shook her head. Not entirely, but more and more. During their exchange, the footman had begun assisting the carriage driver in unloading a series of strapped leather boxes from the roof of the carriage. Amanda's camera, silver plates and other supplies, Beatrix surmised. A second occupant of the carriage appeared in the open door. A man, perhaps in his early thirties, with severely oiled hair scraped flat and an elaborate waxed handlebar moustache. Dr. Doyle. James's smile was sincere. Thank you for coming. How could I resist? The man replied. He gave a nod to Beatrix as he noticed her next to Amanda. And Miss Green, I've heard so much about your abilities. Thank you. Beatrix inclined her head in return, hiding her surprise that one of the most famous authors alive even knew who she was. Doyle moved stiffly as he climbed out of the carriage. Beatrix tried not to stare. She found herself looking at James instead. How did he know the creator of The Great Detective? More to the point, how had he persuaded the author to join his excursion? Once on the ground, Doyle stretched, craning his neck up to take in the imposing structure. Quite the edifice, and with such a bloody history. You know the story, Harry blurted, and didn't wait for a response before he raced on. He held out the penny dreadful he'd purchased. I'm a bit familiar, just now reading it. I think I saw it performed at the Savoy. Of course, this is wretched, simply wretched writing. Not like yours, which exemplary, as you know, simply magnificent. Your stories, I am an ardent fan. What a singular creation you have gifted us all with. Doyle smiled at the younger man. My mind's like an engine, don't you see? Harry continued, quoting the famous detective's words to his creator. When it's not engaged, um, with the work, um, Harry had to stop to take a breath. Doyle stepped closer, dropping his voice. I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on my newest story when it comes out. I'll have my publisher send you an early copy. His eyes practically danced with glee. Oh my. Thank you, Dr. Doyle. It would be my pleasure. Harry smiled broadly. Thank you, my boy. Doyle pumped Harry's hand bracingly. Doyle turned back to the house. And yes, to your earlier question, I do know this house's dark tale. A murder most ghastly. 
Best not to lean too hard on tails, James cut in before Doyle could continue. This is to be a rational inquiry, after all. Do ghosts exist or do they not? I invited Dr. Doyle for his medical mind as much as his affinity for the supernatural. Best we move inside while the light lasts. These cobbles can be treacherous in the dark. He gestured toward the manor. Beatrix raised an eyebrow. He spoke as if he was familiar with the haunted manse. As if it wasn't his first visit. Perhaps he'd been there before to arrange their overnight stay. Their coterie moved toward the imposing door. Amanda fell into step next to Beatrix. So what do you know of this house? I only know what James said in his telegraph. Myself as well, Beatrix replied. I only know that it's a famously haunted place, and we learned a little of the murder from the throng at the gates. Well, whatever this place is and whatever happened in there, we women must stick together. Amanda held out a gallant hand, indicating that Beatrix should go through the door first. Beatrix bit down a grin. She liked this woman already. Stepping across the threshold, the air was quite a bit colder than she expected. She didn't have to manufacture the gasp of surprise, nor the shiver. And she couldn't help but notice that James was watching her with sudden intent. Well, so what if he did? Her performance could start here. She played into the moment. Her parents had been actors, after all, and James's response would speak volumes about how truly he wished to believe in ghosts. As she shivered, she clasped her arms around herself and allowed her body to list to one side, as if she was overcome by unseen currents in the house. Harry was beside her in an instant, shoring up her elbow. Are you all right, Bee? He was sincerely so concerned that Beatrix almost thought he was taken in by her little ruse as well except he'd reached for her opposite elbow, the one which was upstage from the door, thereby making certain that their little performance could be seen. I'm fine. Beatrix leaned on her friend slightly and brought one hand to her temple. It's been a long day of travel, Harry replied. Beatrix assiduously didn't look directly at James, but she could feel his gaze on her. In her peripheral vision, she could see that he was leaning forward, either in eagerness to behold the supernatural or to catch her manufacture of it. Beatrix righted herself. Best not overdo it. Amanda stepped firmly across the threshold, moving into the large entry hall. Cold, isn't it? The servants have laid fires in the bedrooms and in the drawing room, James informed them, still watching Beatrix closely. But I hope you haven't caught a chill, Miss Green. He hadn't entered yet, waiting to be the last to enter the house as etiquette demanded. Where is Doyle? Beatrix righted herself, looking for the famous author. Doyle was standing stock still on the forecourt, a mere stride's length away from the doorway. James stood in profile, his expression shifting from tense welcome to slight confusion. Beatrix couldn't help but notice his aquiline nose, slightly crooked at the bridge, was dramatically offset by his vibrant blue eyes and fine slashes of dark brows. Dr. Doyle. James prompted, gesturing with a broad hand at the open doorway. The author shook his head, his eyes wide. No, this isn't right at all. Pardon? James stepped forward. Doyle took a step back in response, a hand held up to forestall contact. Oh, don't touch me. Don't go in, he said, 
his voice suddenly booming with urgency. Beatrix felt something twist in her stomach. She was the one putting on a show, not Doyle. He had nothing to prove, so why did it look like there was real terror in his eyes? But we're here too, James began. Don't you feel it? Doyle tugged his gloves back on in agitation. Something is in there, something evil. He shook his head. I won't go in. You shouldn't either, James. Doyle turned back to the carriage, waving to the driver and footman. They scurried to reload his luggage. Wait, our investigation. James took a few steps after him. No, no, I will not be entering the mouth of hell. And to the rest of you, I suggest you do the same. Leave while you can and consider this a warning. Doyle jammed his hat firmly back on his head. He opened the carriage door himself and climbed back inside. I'll be at the inn we passed, the heart and the hunt. You may find me there. Beatrix couldn't believe her ears and eyes. Was the man serious? I can't believe he's actually going. Harry sounded heartbroken as his idol slammed the carriage door closed and rapped on the ceiling with his cane. The carriage lurched into motion, the jingle of harness and clatter of hooves receding as Doyle departed. Beatrix watched him go, worry seeping into her veins. Even though she knew there would be no actual haunting, it was hard to feel blasé once inside the forbidding manor. Doyle's abrupt exit was disquieting. Whether he was a firm believer in the supernatural or not, he had agreed to come, had known their purpose. Wouldn't that make him more likely to stay? It was hard to shake a feeling of impending doom, that she shouldn't have come, and she certainly shouldn't have brought hers. But the money, it could solve so many problems, perpetual, nagging, worrisome problems. For her, it meant freedom, independence, and even leisure she had never dared take. A man like Doyle had nothing to lose whether he left or stayed, but Beatrix did. And she'd heard rumors that he was a fanatic of the occult, a ready believer, like her customers. For people like that, it was easy to see shadows where there were none. Easier still to build it up further into something near demonic, like those people at the gates, turning the scene of a tragic murder into something more than macabre entertainment. They'd made this house into a place that was famously haunted. Now? All Beatrix had to do was prove if that was or wasn't true. Easy enough for someone like her. She steeled her nerves and straightened her spine. If anything, Dr. Doyle had just done a wonderful job getting everyone ready for quite the show. James turned back to his remaining guests, a scowl on his face. We can still conduct our seance, Amanda called out in reassurance, and then she murmured so that only Beatrix could hear. A bit timid, aren't they? Who? Beatrix whispered. Amanda's eyebrow arched. The weaker sex. Beatrix coughed into her handkerchief to hide her laugh. Yes, quite right. Everything is going to be fine. I have no need for a novelist to assist me in my endeavors, Beatrix confirmed. James nodded curtly and raked a hand through his dark brown hair. I suppose. He strode back up the steps to the front door. Then he too paused on the threshold. He drew himself fully upright, face grim as if daring the house to manifest anything, as if spitting in the eye of the devil or facing down an executioner. He stepped across the threshold into the cavernous entryway. Beatrix dissected his every move. She could sense he had summoned courage from some deep emotional reserve 
in order to enter the supposedly haunted house. And she remembered his rapid pulse as he spoke of the people at the gates. Something about this house affected him more than he wanted to let on. He'd pinned his hopes on her being a real medium and on the ghost of this forlorn house, a place where a mother and child had met their sad fate. At the same time, he was a scientist who specialized in unmasking charlatans and had never hesitated to do so. James looked around the large hall. His eyes met hers. The faint light of unmistakable hope was in his momentary gaze. And so there was her answer. He truly wanted to believe. In spite of his efforts to unmask fraudulent spiritualists, James Walker must deep down have suspected that the afterlife was real. In apparitions and curses, in the possibility of spectres, Otherwise, why had he needed to steel himself to cross through the door? All the better for her. She could work with that. The underlying hope or fear or belief. The powerful desire to believe. Making people believe was what she did best. Beatrix's room in Ashbury Manor was sumptuous and larger than her entire flat in London. It was also drafty and somewhat dilapidated, with air like a tomb. It was clear no human had inhabited Ashbury Manor for many years. But there was a cheerful fire in the grate, and then a supper tray had been brought by a silent maid. The young girl refused to answer any of Beatrix's basic questions about the house, and eagerly curtsied and left the moment she deposited her tray. Beatrix unpacked her few things, laying out her brushes and combs and pots of lotion and perfume, feeling for a strange moment, almost as if she were to take up residence in the manor as its lady. Beatrix nibbled at her meal. She pulled out the penny dreadful and began flipping through it. The atrocious deaths of poor Elise and darling Tom, the title screamed across the front page. The pamphlet was an exemplar of the mode, all lurid illustrations and sorrow-tinged lords for the dearly departed and padded with pointless information about other murders, other ghosts, other poor, hapless victims. Over half of the pamphlet was about the history of the house. Beatrix huffed in impatience and turned back to the illustrations. A woman sat improbably upright on a fainting couch. A dark swirl of ink indicated the spreading wet stain of blood down her ink-slashed neck, across her nightgown, pooling on the floor in a vast black lake. Elephants didn't hold that much blood. Beatrix snorted and flipped the page. Poor Elise was indeed the mother of darling Tom. They'd both been murdered, mother and son, in their ancestral home, Ashbury Manor. The perpetrator had never been caught. The pamphlet went on to recount the lack of a culprit. Was there evidence to point to who had done the damned deed? Some faint details about a footman who had subsequently disappeared. Lack of evidence glossed over moving on instead to the sorrow and devastation of the husband and father, Lord Michael Ashbury, who had sequestered himself in the house after the murders, not allowing any to enter, drowning his grief in alcohol and dying at a tragically early age many years later. So perhaps not dead from grief after all, Beatrix thought, doing the math in her head, and not nearly as tragically young as his unfortunate bride. A flutter of thumps insistent at the window startled Beatrix. A bat? Or an owl? Beatrix put her hand on her chest. 
Too much time had passed. Beatrix had to prepare. She set the pamphlet aside and stilled her mind, picturing the seance to come. She wouldn't change her costume. She'd remain wearing her demure grey travelling skirt and nip-tucked blouse, buttoned all the way up to its lace-edged collar. Beatrix knew she looked drab, but she wasn't out to hoodwink the easily gulled with fans and shawls, or daring shows of shoulders and décolleté. She would do as she always did. She would guide the images, the words, even the grief or longing of her client, using only her own unique empathy. Beatrix brushed out her hair and pinned it up in curling sections. It was a simple hairstyle that would tumble down easily, should she need to accentuate any moments with convulsions or shivers. That was as theatrical as she would get. Beatrix stood before the looking glass, taking in the effect of her dove grey skirt and white blouse. Then she repositioned the plain silver brooch, moving it from her throat to the left side of her chest, just below the swell of her shoulder. She sighed. It was the best she could do. Outside her chamber's windows, the night pressed against the glass. A single owl hooted in the distance. The heavy cloud cover had returned, not allowing even a shaft of moonlight to pierce the blackness. Beatrix nodded to herself and picked up her valise. Time to descend and conduct the seance. She took a deep breath and crossed to the chamber door. As she opened the door, she noticed a slim table tucked into an alcove. It held a small potted plant straining toward the opposite windows. It was a wildflower, the sweet pea, a straggling specimen but defiantly in bloom. A stalk of beautiful purple blossoms opened to the world. Another stalk with cupped blooms waited to open alongside the first. Impulsively, Beatrix gently broke the stalk of opened flowers off. She inhaled their sweet scent and then tucked the stem behind the backing of her brooch. The purple and green of the wildflowers nearly pulsated with life against her white blouse. Perfect. Beatrix stepped out into the dark paneled hallway. The gaslight from the few flickering lamps did little to either light the stairwell or ease the aura of the manor as a haunted place, shrouded in shadow. Beatrix gathered her skirts in one hand and placed a hand on the railing. Behind her, a gentle footfall caused her to turn around. Amanda Reynolds stood a few paces away, holding a three-taper candelabra. Beatrix smiled reflexively at her new acquaintance. Amanda also hadn't changed out of her traveling clothes. She still wore the trousers, with the same striped waistcoat and green velvet jacket. But she had changed her hair, twisting her wavy shoulder-length locks into a series of small buns nested behind her ears and along the nape of her neck. She was very fetching and arresting both, no matter the hairstyle, Beatrix decided. Amanda paused, having spotted Beatrix poised at the top of the stair. Don't you look a picture, poised there. Beatrix smiled and gave a small curtsy. Likewise. And then after a pause... Speaking of pictures, do you have your camera equipment already set up? Why, yes, I do, Amanda said in her charming American accent, all set up around the seance table. Beatrix felt a small chill go through her. She hadn't quite realized that Amanda would be photographing her while she worked. That would be another ball to keep in the air during her performance. Amanda crossed the last few steps to the top of the stairs, 
She paused, fishing a cigarillo out of her waistcoat pocket, then leaning slightly into the flame from one of the tapers to light it. Please don't take this the wrong way, Amanda drawled as she inhaled. But I want to tell you that you need not fear anything from me or my cameras. Beatrix felt her eyebrows rising. What on earth did Amanda mean? Why should she be... Oh, Beatrix breathed. She had been right in assuming that Amanda had been hired to assess her skills as a medium. If she'd been the sort to employ cheap parlor tricks, the types of ruses which would be eminently discernible on film, Amanda's negatives would have exposed the truth. We both know life is damn hard for a woman. And earning a way, keeping one's freedom, is a tantamount endeavor. I would destroy every camera I owned before I clipped another woman's wings. Though her voice was hushed, her words nearly vibrated with the force of her emotion. Amanda continued, If you require, simply say the word and I will overexpose any picture. Roll in the plates. I swear it. Thank you, Beatrix said simply. She was moved. We shall be friends, and if I can help you in any way, you must tell me. Amanda nodded. It's a pact. Beatrix squeezed her hand. Sisters. Amanda smiled broadly. I like that. She presented her arm to Beatrix. Shall we descend? Beatrix transferred her grip from the staircase balustrade to Amanda's arm. We shall, Beatrix agreed. Amanda began a leisurely descent, and Beatrix felt warmed by the idea that she'd already made a friend in this house. Good idea, that. Beatrix inclined her head toward the candelabra. Not my first seance, Amanda replied, her eyebrow arched playfully. As a photographer, it's always a good idea to bring one's own source of light. Hmm, Beatrix murmured in agreement. Does Mr. Reynolds share your passion for spectres? Amanda couldn't hold back the snort of laughter. Michael? No, he doesn't. A stater creature you couldn't find without a prolonged search. He's eminently practical. A pure mathematician, to be precise. He's a brick. Amanda's voice was filled with love and admiration. Beatrix smiled wonderingly. She couldn't picture the described man partnered with the unconventional woman escorting her downstairs. I'm not psychic, but I've seen that expression before. Amanda teased as they paused on the landing. Oh? You're wondering one of two things. Either you're wondering why my husband allows me to gallivant off without him, or you're wondering how on earth I could marry a mathematician. Beatrix laughed. Correct on both counts. Amanda chuckled. Michael's completely modern, radical even. Ours is a marriage of equals. Amanda paused looking up at the series of massive oil paintings lining the vaulted stairwell, a gallery's worth of forbidding male faces glared out eternally. He's nothing like these antiques, Amanda continued, with their exploitation and paternalistic control. Beatrix followed Amanda's gaze to one portrait in particular, the newest, it appeared, by both the clothing worn by the subject and the style adopted by the painter. Like the other paintings surrounding it, the subject stared out with superior hostility, as if daring any onlooker to judge him. It was like that painting she and Harry had seen once in the Royal Gallery. Henry VIII, standing larger than life, legs splayed, radiating power, yes, but a palpable ugliness underneath. 
Behold me, master of all I survey. Beatrix shuddered. God save all women from marriage to such as these, Beatrix murmured. Amanda cocked an appreciative eyebrow. I'm not particularly devout. She paused to take a drag on her cigarillo, then allowed smoke to plume out of her mouth with her next words. But a hearty amen to that. They turned and descended the rest of the stairs together, like twin monarchs having signed a powerful treaty. Beatrix couldn't escape the feeling of unease, actual jitters that marched across her skin when she crossed the threshold into the opulent room, the site of her seance. She had deduced that James wanted to believe in ghosts. Now she just had to make it so. But so much of the next few hours would be out of her control, and Beatrix was always in control of her surroundings, her clientele, and herself most of all. But here she was, not in her own modest apartments parlor, but in the grand drawing room of an ancient estate. The feeling only got worse when James dismissed the servants for the evening, telling them to return in the morning. His shockingly blue eyes sparked at Beatrix. It's best we are alone for the seance, yes? He asked, for their safety and to ensure. His pause felt as dark as the room itself, to ensure no interference. His meaning was clear. Beatrix's spine stiffened in response. Don't be a bore, Walker, Amanda chided. She placed her candelabra in the center of a single round wooden table, surrounded by high-backed chairs. Her cameras had been set up alongside it. There was an older model on a tripod and a new one shaped like a small box. It seemed impossible such a small thing could take a reliable picture, yet Amanda clearly favored it, moving around and testing her lens from various angles. What's that? Harry asked, gesturing at the box. Amanda held it out. Isn't it wonderful? It's the newest Eastman. It's called a Kodak. Marvelous, Harry enthused. Beatrix noted that the table had no tablecloth, no doubt so James could ensure Beatrix wasn't doing some parlor trick under the cover. I say, shall we set the stage by telling a story? Harry's voice was bright and Beatrix could tell he was in true actor form, attempting to warm up the audience. He walked over to the fire, rubbing his hands together eagerly. Have you heard the ghost story? The one who walks alone? No, tell it. Amanda set down her camera, poured herself a sherry, and joined Harry by the fire. The smallest, almost imperceptible sigh of impatience escaped their host. Too bad Dr. Doyle isn't here to join in the tale-telling, James said, his voice derisive. Beatrix let her eyes rest on him, let him feel the weight of her gaze. He was so hard to fathom. One moment he looked at her with fervor, the next disdain and all that on top of the first moment at his club, when he looked at her with near desperation. If we may at least take our seats, James interposed the request. He held his hand out to Beatrix. She took it. James led her almost like it was the first steps of a dance. He directed her to the chair facing the fire. No doubt he wanted to see her face clearly during her performance. So be it. James pulled Beatrix's massive chair back with ease. Beatrix smoothed her skirt and sat. It was hard not to be aware of James, now looming behind her. 
She could swear she felt the weight of his eyes without looking back at him. She could feel them almost physically sweep over her shoulder and down. Harry and Amanda sat down on either side of her, with James taking his place across, the candlelight flickering over his face, the fire roaring behind him, setting his sharp features in shadow. In Morley Abbey, many years ago, Harry began, old man Morley lived alone. He was a widower, and his wife had died in her youth, leaving him childless. That doesn't sound like gentry to me, James sniped. Morley would have remarried. Shh, let him talk, Walker, Amanda said. Morley was an esthete, happy in his solitude, pursuing his art, painting, probably. Probably? Amanda laughed. Art, Harry said, his voice quellingly serious. Or religion. Stop interrupting. Of course, there are always artistic monks, Amanda agreed, equally serious. She laughed, then went silent at Harry's truly quelling gaze. Has leaned back and stared, lost in reverie, his gaze above their heads. Beatrix recognized the technique. It was his soliloquy look. He never cared. He lived his life in isolated splendor in Morley Abbey by himself. Many people tried to reach him, to engage him. No, no, he'd say, and Harry put on an impatient, educated accent, almost like James. Leave me alone, Harry kept staring above their heads. One cold night, an old beggar man knocked at the door of Morley Abbey. Harry's knuckles rapped the table three times. Oh, sir, the beggar cried. Please let me in. Harry lowered his gaze, an evil smile talking his lips. He must help me, he continued in the old man's voice, for the night is cold, and I shall die this night if you do not. You cannot enter, Morley told him. The old man cried out. He sank to his knees. He warned, if you do not help me, I shall curse you and haunt you, Lord Morley. For though your life will be short, your suffering will be too long, ere my soul relinquishes its hold on this realm. Beatrix felt a chill go up her spine. She recognized the bard and quite a few other playwrights in Hazard's tale. But there was also something else, a cast to his voice and gaze she did not recognize. Where had he learned this tale? Be gone, wretch, Lord Morley cried. I must return to my studies alone. The beggar lifted a single finger and placed it thus on his own throat. Harry lifted his finger and hooked it in jabbing stabs as if tearing. This night you shall be alone. This night you shall suffer alone. This night you shall die alone the beggar cried. Lord Morley closed the door in derision. He ascended to his study. He returned to his solitary endeavors. A faint moan echoed beyond the door of the sitting room. The familiar creak and groan of an old house settling, Beatrix told herself. Lord Morley tried to return to his study. He tried to return to his focus, Harry intoned. He could not. The wind howled, the oppressive and sudden heat of his crackling fire the noise in the next room. Was it a voice? It's nothing, it's nothing. I am alone, Lord Morley assured himself. 
In the morning, the woodsman arrived to deliver his allotment for the day. No one answered his knock. Not even the cook could gain access to the house. It was shut tight from within. Finally, they achieved entry and were met with a gruesome sight. The old man had indeed died alone. Quite horribly, Harry said. Amanda sat forward in anticipation of the detail. Lord Morley's throat was ripped out, but there was no one else present. Impossible, Amanda said. Maybe one of his dogs or even a rat nodded out and he simply died of a heart attack. No, Harry shook his head emphatically. He wrote in his blood, you see, from his own throat. No, Amanda breathed. And so what part of this is the ghost story? James asked, an eyebrow raised. Indeed, Harry said. And so now we get to the ghost, for the old man is still there in Morley Abbey, wandering, scraping. He walks alone. They say some visitors hear the garbled cries as he chokes on his own blood, begging to be let inside. There was a sudden booming knock, echoing through the tall atrium beyond the drawing room. Beatrix jumped, Harry that had a startled cry, Amanda gasped, then chuckled at her own surprise. James's face looked like thunder. Maybe one of the servants lost their way, Harry suggested. Perhaps Dr. Doyle has returned? Oh, it's one of the damned fans, James spat out. He pushed back his chair and strode out of the room and toward the front door. The rest of them leapt out of their chairs, hurrying to follow. The booming knock sounded again, ominous as if something on the other side was hungry, impatient for them, as if something loomed there, an unseen threat. The snake curled under your pillow, the gathering lightning above your head. Beatrix had to quench the sudden desire to cry out, warning James not to open the door. The dreadful knock sounded for a third time, like a portent in a ghastly story. Three knocks and the devil will appear. James placed his hand on the door handle and gave it a good, strong pull. It opened with a heavy creak. Outside, all was pure darkness. Beatrix could just barely distinguish the outline of a murky figure edged in gloom. Her heartbeat pulsed in her ears as a single, firm footfall sounded, and a man advanced out of the darkness. Did you see the real person cameos coming? I did say that spiritualism was a craze in the 19th century and Arthur Conan Doyle was a true believer. He spent decades researching supernatural phenomena and, and you don't think of you know Sherlock Holmes as, uh, as a horror genre, but if you read something like Hound of the Baskervilles again, you can, you can definitely see the Victorian Gothic influence on that. Okay, the stage is set. Our ghost hunting team is assembled, and Beatrix is going to have to work hard to avoid being caught if the ghosts don't get them first. See you next time. You're listening to Fear, Beatrix Green, 
Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Beatrix Green is written by Rachel Hawkins, Ash Parsons, and Vicki Elvier Schechter. Produced by Haley Wagreich. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Sharomi Arsario and Alistair Austin. Audio production, sound design, editing, and theme music by Amanda Rose Smith. Additional editing by Kaylin West. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Fear is produced by Mary Osadolahi and Haley Wagreich. Associate produced by Nicole Kreuter and Alexis Latshaw. Executive produced by Molly Barton, Julian Yap, and Marcy Wiseman. Hosted by Pun Bandu. Audio editing by Felicia Dominguez. Original theme by Hashem Osadolahi. Featuring drummer Andrew Niven and mixed by Max Kuttner. Cover art by Kendall Thomas. Find more shows like Fear by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm.